0: Chapters five and six of a Tale of Two Cities. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter V. The Wine Shop A large cask of wine had been dropped and broken in the streets. The accident had happened in getting it out of a cart. The cask had tumbled out with a run, the hoops had burst and it lay on the stones just outside the door of the wine-shop shattered like a walnut shell all the people within reach had suspended their business or their idleness to run to the spot and drink the wine the rough irregular stones of the street pointing every way and designed one might have thought expressly to lame all living creatures that approached them had dammed it into little pools These were surrounded, each by its own jostling group or crowd, according to its size. Some men kneeled down, made scoops of their two hands joined, and sipped, or tried to help women, who bent over their shoulders, to sip, before the wine had run out between their fingers. Others, men and women, dipped in the puddles with little mugs of mutilated earthenware, or even with handkerchiefs from women's heads, which were squeezed dry into infants' mouths. Others made small mud embankments, to stem the wine as it ran. Others, directed by lookers-on up at high windows, darted here and there to cut off little streams of wine that started away in new directions. Others devoted themselves to the sodden and lead-dyed pieces of the cask, licking and even champing the moister, wine-rotted fragments with eager relish. There was no drainage to carry off the wine, and not only did it all get taken up, but so much mud got taken up along with it, that there might have been a scavenger in the street, if anybody acquainted with it could have believed in such a miraculous presence. A shrill sound of laughter and of amused voices, voices of men, women, and children, resounded in the street while this wine-game lasted. There was little roughness in the sport, and much playfulness. There was a special companionship in it, an observable inclination on the part of everyone, to join some other one, which led, especially among the luckier or lighter-hearted, to frolicsome embraces, drinking of healths, shaking of hands, and even joining of hands and dancing, a dozen together. When the wine was gone, and the places where it had been most abundant were raked into a gridiron pattern by fingers, these demonstrations ceased, as suddenly as they had broken out. The man who had left his saw sticking in the firewood he was cutting, set it in motion again the women who had left on a doorstep the little pot of hot ashes at which she had been trying to soften the pain in her own starved fingers and toes or in those of her child returned to it men with bare arms matted locks and cadaverous faces who had emerged into the winter light from cellars moved away to descend again and a gloom gathered on the scene that appeared more natural to it than sunshine The wine was red wine, and had stained the ground of the narrow street in the suburb of St. Antoine, in Paris, where it was spilled. It had stained many hands, too, and many faces, and many naked feet, and many wooden shoes. The hand of the man who saw the wood left red marks on the billets, and the forehead of the woman who nursed her baby was stained with the stain of the old rag she wound about her head again. Those who had been greedy with the staves of the cask had acquired a tigerish smear about the mouth, and one tall joker so besmirched, his head more out of a long squalid bag of a nightcap than in it, scrawled upon a wall with his finger dipped in muddy wine blood. The time was to come when that wine too would be spilled on the street-stones, and when the stain of it would be red upon many there and now that the cloud settled on saint antoine which a momentary gleam had driven from his sacred countenance the darkness of it was heavy cold dirt sickness ignorance and want were the lords in waiting on the saintly presence nobles of great power all of them but most especially the last samples of a people that had undergone a terrible grinding and regrinding in the mill and certainly not in the fabulous mill which ground old people young, shivered at every corner, passed in and out of every doorway, looked from every window, fluttered in every vestige of a garment that the wind shook. The mill which had worked them down was the mill that grinds young people old. The children had ancient faces and grave voices, and upon them, and upon the grown faces, And ploughed into every furrow of age and coming up afresh was the sigh hunger. It was prevalent everywhere. Hunger was pushed out of the tall houses in the wretched clothing that hung upon poles and lines. Hunger was patched into them with straw and rag and wood and paper. Hunger was repeated in every fragment of the small modicum of firewood that the men sawed off. Hunger stared down from the smokeless chimneys and started up from the filthy street that had no awful among its refuse of anything to eat hunger was the inscription on the baker's shelves written in every small loaf of his scanty stock of bad bread at the sausage shop in every dead dog preparation that was offered for sale hunger rattled its dry bones among the roasting chestnuts in the turned cylinder hunger was shred into atomics in every farthing porringer of husky chips of potato fried with some reluctant drops of oil its abiding-place was in all things fitted to it a narrow winding street full of offence and stench with other narrow winding streets diverging all peopled by rags and nightcaps and all smelling of rags and nightcaps and all visible things with a brooding look upon them that looked ill In the hunted air of the people there was yet some wild beast thought of the possibility of turning at bay. Depressed and slinking though they were, eyes of fire were not wanting among them, nor compressed lips white with what they suppressed, nor foreheads knitted into the likeness of the gallows-rope they mused about enduring or inflicting. The trade signs, and they were almost as many as the shops, were all grim illustrations of want. The butcher and the porkman painted up only the leanest scrags of meat, the baker the coarsest of meagre loaves. The people rudely pictured as drinking in the wine-shops, croaked over their scanty measures of thin wine and beer, and were gloweringly confidential together. Nothing was represented in a flourishing condition, save tools and weapons. But the cutler's knives and axes were sharp and bright, the smith's hammers were heavy and the gunmaker's stock was murderous. The crippling stones of the pavements, with their many little reservoirs of mud and water, had no footways, but broke off abruptly at the doors. The kennel, to make amends, ran down the middle of the street, when it ran at all, which was only after heavy rains, and then it ran, by many eccentric fits, into the houses, Across the streets, at wide intervals, one clumsy lamp was slung by a rope and pulley. At night, when the lamplighter had let these down, and lighted and hoisted them again, a feeble grove of dim wicks swung in a sickly manner overhead, as if they were at sea. Indeed, they were at sea, and the ship and crew were in peril of tempest. For the time was to come, When the gaunt scarecrows of that region should have watched the lamplighter in their idleness and hunger, so long as to conceive the idea of improving on his method and hauling up men by those ropes and pulleys to flare upon the darkness of their condition. But the time was not come yet, and every wind that blew over France shook the rags of the scarecrows in vain, for the birds, fine of song and feather, took no warning. The wine shop was a corner shop, better than most others in its appearance and degree, and the master of the wine shop had stood outside it, in a yellow waistcoat and green breeches, looking on at the struggle for the lost wine. It's not my affair, said he, with a final shrug of the shoulders. The people from the market did it. Let them bring another. There, his eyes happening to catch the tall joker writing up his joke, he called to him across the way. "'Say, then, my Gaspar, what do you do there?' The fellow pointed to his joke with immense significance, as is often the way with his tribe. It missed its mark, and completely failed, as is often the way with his tribe, too. "'What now? Are you a subject for the mad hospital?' said the wine-shop keeper, crossing the road, and obliterating the jest with a handful of mud, picked up for the purpose and smeared over it. Why do you write in the public streets? Is there tell me thou is there no other place to write such words in in his expostulation, He dropped his cleaner hand, perhaps accidentally, perhaps not, upon the joker's heart. The joker wrapped it with his own, took a nimble spring upward, and came down in a fantastic dancing attitude with one of his stained shoes, jerked off his foot into his hand, and held out a joker of an extremely, not to say wolfishly, practical character, he looked under those circumstances. "'Put it on! Put it on!' said the other. "'Call wine! Wine and finish there!' With that advice he wiped his soiled hand upon the joker's dress, such as it was, quite deliberately, as having dirtied the hand on his account, and then recrossed the road, and entered the wine-shop. The wine-shopkeeper was a bull necked martial-looking man of thirty, and he should have been of a hot temperament, for, although it was a bitter day, he wore no coat, but carried one, slung over his shoulder. His shirt-sleeves were rolled up too, and his brown arms were bare to the elbows. Neither did he wear anything more on his head than his own crispy, curling, short, dark hair. He was a dark man altogether, with good eyes and a good, bold breadth between them good-humoured looking on the whole, but implacable looking, too, evidently a man of a strong resolution and a set purpose, a man not desirable to be met, rushing down a narrow pass with a gulf on either side, for nothing would turn the man. Madame Defarge, his wife, sat in the shop behind the counter as he came in. Madame Defarge was a stout woman of about his own age with a watchful eye that seldom seemed to look at anything. A large hand heavily ringed, a steady face, strong features, and great composure of manner. There was a character about Madame Defarge from which one might have predicated that she did not often make mistakes against herself in any of the reckonings over which she presided. Madame Defarge, being sensitive to cold, was wrapped in fur, and had a quantity of bright shawl twined about her head though not to the concealment of her large earrings. Her knitting was before her, but she laid it down to pick her teeth with a toothpick. Thus engaged with her right elbow supported by her left hand, Madame Defarge said nothing when her lord came in, but coughed just one grain of cough. This, in combination with the lifting of her darkly defined eyebrows over her toothpick by the breadth of a line, suggested to her husband, that he would do well to look round the shop among the customers for any new customer who had dropped in while he stepped over the way the wine-shopkeeper accordingly rolled his eyes about until they rested upon an elderly gentleman and a young lady who were seated in a corner other company were there two playing cards two playing dominoes three standing by the counter lengthening out a short supply of wine as he passed behind the counter he took notice that the elderly gentleman said in a look to the young lady, "'This is our man.' "'What the devil do you do in that gallery there?' said M. Defarge to himself. "'I don't know you.' But he feigned not to notice the two strangers, and fell into discourse with the triumvirate of customers who were drinking at the counter. "'How goes it, Jacques?' said one of these three to Monsieur Defarge. Is all the spilt wine swallowed? Every drop, Jacques, answered Monsieur Defarge. When this interchange of Christian name was effected, Madame Defarge, picking her teeth with her toothpick, coughed another grain of cough, and raised her eyebrows by the breadth of another line. It is not orphan, said the second of the three, addressing Monsieur Defarge that many of these miserable beasts know the taste of wine or or of anything but black bread and death is it not so jacques it is so jacques monsieur defarge returned at this second interchange of the christian name madame defarge still using her toothpick with profound composure coughed another grain of cough and raised her eyebrows by the breadth of another line the last of the three now said his say as he put down his empty drinking-vessel and smacked his lips ah so much the worse a better taste it is that such poor cattle always have in their mouths and hard lives they live jacques. am i right jacques you are very right jacques was the response of monsieur defarge the third interchange of the christian name was completed at the moment when madame defarge put her toothpick by kept her eyebrows up and slightly rustled in her seat hold then true muttered her husband gentlemen my wife the three customers pulled off their hats to madame defarge with three flourishes she acknowledged their homage by bending her head and giving them a quick look then she glanced in a casual manner round the wine-shop took up her knitting with great apparent calmness and repose of spirit And became absorbed in it gentlemen said her husband who had kept his bright eye observantly upon her good day the chamber furnished bachelor fashion that you wish to see and were inquiring for when i stepped out is on the fifth floor the doorway of the staircase gives on the little courtyard close to the left here pointing with his hand near to the window of my establishment but now that i remember one of you has already been there and can show the way gentlemen adieu they paid for their wine and left the place the eyes of monsieur defarge were studying his wife at her knitting when the elderly gentleman advanced from his corner and begged the favour of a word willingly sir said monsieur defarge and quietly stepped with him to the door Their conference was very short, but very decided. Almost at the first word, Monsieur Defarge started, and became deeply attentive. It had not lasted a minute, when he nodded and went out. The gentleman then beckoned to the young lady, and they too went out. Madame Defarge knitted with nimble fingers and steady eyebrows, and saw nothing. Mr. Jarvis Lorry and Miss Manette, emerging from the wine-shop thus, joined monsieur defarge in the doorway to which he had directed his own company just before it opened from a stinking little black courtyard and was the general public entrance to a great pile of houses inhabited by a great number of people in the gloomy tile-paved entry to the gloomy tile-paved staircase monsieur defarge bent down on one knee to the child of his old master and put her hand to his lips it was a gentle action but not at all gently done. A very remarkable transformation had come over him in a few seconds. He had no good humour in his face, nor any openness of aspect left, but had become a secret, angry, dangerous man. "'It is very high. It is a little difficult. Better to begin slowly.' Thus, Monsieur Defarge, in a stern voice to Mr. Lorry, as they began ascending the stairs, Is he alone? the latter whispered. Alone? God help him, who should be with him? said the other, in the same low voice. Is he always alone, then? Yes. Of his own desire? Of his own necessity? As he was, when I first saw him, after they found me, and demanded to know if I would take him, and at my peril be discreet. As he was then, so is he now he is greatly changed changed the keeper of the wine-shop stopped to strike the wall with his hand and mutter a tremendous curse no direct answer could have been half so forceful mr lorry's spirits grew heavier and heavier as he and his two companions ascended higher and higher such a staircase with its accessories in the older and more crowded parts of paris would be bad enough now but at that time it was vile indeed to unaccustomed and unhardened senses. Every little habitation within the great foul nest of one high building—that is to say, the room or rooms within every door that opened on the general staircase—left its own heap of refuse on its own landing, besides flinging other refuse from its own windows. The uncontrollable and hopeless mass of decomposition so engendered, would have polluted the air even if poverty and deprivation had not loaded it with their intangible impurities. The two bad sources combined made it almost insupportable. Through such an atmosphere, by a steep dark shaft of dirt and poison, the way lay. Yielding to his own disturbance of mind, and to his young companion's agitation, which became greater every instant, Mr. Jarvis Lorry twice stopped to rest. Each of these stoppages was made at a doleful grating, by which any languishing good airs that were left uncorrupted seemed to escape, and all spoilt and sickly vapours seemed to crawl in. Through the rusted bars, tastes, rather than glimpses, were caught of the jumbled neighbourhood, and nothing within range, nearer or lower than the summits of the two great towers of Notre-Dame, had any promise on it of healthy life or wholesome aspirations. At last the top of the staircase was gained, and they stopped for the third time. There was yet an upper staircase, of a steeper inclination and of contracted dimensions to be ascended, before the garret-story was reached. The keeper of the wine-shop, always going a little in advance, and always going on the side which Mr. Lorry took, as though he dreaded to be asked any question by the young lady, turned himself about here and, carefully feeling in the pockets of the coat he carried over his shoulder, took out a key. "'The door is locked, then, my friend,' said Mr. Lorry, surprised. "Ay, yes,' was the grim reply of Monsieur Defarge. "'You think it necessary to keep the unfortunate gentleman so retired?' "'I think it necessary to turn the key,' Monsieur Defarge whispered it closer in his ear, and frowned heavily. "'Why? Why? because he has lived so long locked up, that he would be frightened, rave, tear himself to pieces, die, come to I know not what harm, if his door was left open. Is it possible? exclaimed mr Lorry. Is it possible? repeated Defarge bitterly. Yes! and a beautiful world we live in, when it is possible, and when many other such things are possible, and not only possible, but done, Don see you under that sky there every day. Long live the devil! Let us go on." This dialogue had been held in so very low a whisper, that not a word of it had reached the young lady's ears. But by this time she trembled under such strong emotion, and her face expressed such deep anxiety, and, above all, such dread and terror, that Mr. Lorry felt it incumbent on him to speak a word or two of reassurance. "'Courage, dear miss, courage, business. The worst will be over in a moment. It is but passing the room door, and the worst is over. Then, all the good you bring to him, all the relief, all the happiness you bring to him, begin. Let our good friend here assist you on that side.' that's well friend defarge come now business business they went up slowly and softly the staircase was short and they were soon at the top there as it had an abrupt turn to it they came all at once in the sight of three men whose heads were bent down close together at the side of a door and who were intently looking into the room to which the door belonged through some chinks or holes in the wall. On hearing footsteps close at hand, these three turned and rose, and showed themselves to be the three of one name who had been drinking in the wine-shop. "'I forgot them in the surprise of your visit,' explained Monsieur Defarge. "'Leave us, good boys, we have business here.' The three glided by, and went silently down there appearing to be no other door on that floor and the keeper of the wine-shop going straight to this one when they were left alone mr lorry asked him in a whisper with a little anger do you make a show of monsieur manette i show him in the way you have seen to a chosen few is that well i think it is well who are the few how do you choose them i show them as real men of my name is my name to whom the sight is likely to do good enough you are english that is another thing stay there if you please a little moment with an admonitory gesture to keep them back he stooped and looked in through the crevice in the wall soon raising his head again he struck twice or thrice upon the door evidently with no other object than to make a noise there With the same intention, he drew the key across it, three or four times, before he put it clumsily into the lock, and turned it as heavily as he could. The door slowly opened inward under his hand, and he looked into the room and said something. A faint voice answered something. Little more than a single syllable could have been spoken on either side. He looked back over his shoulder, and beckoned them to enter mr lorry got his arm securely round the daughter's waist and held her, for he felt that she was sinking. Business, business, he urged, with a moisture that was not of business shining on his cheek. Come in, come in. I am afraid of it, she answered, shuddering. Of it? What? I mean of him, of my father. Rendered in a manner desperate, by her state and by the beckoning of their conductor, he drew over his neck the arm that shook upon his shoulder, lifted her a little, and hurried her into the room. He sat her down just within the door and held her, clinging to him. Defarge drew out the key, closed the door, locked it on the inside, took out the key again, and held it in his hand. All this he did methodically, and with as loud and harsh an accompaniment of noise as he could make. Finally, he walked across the room with a measured tread to where the window was. He stopped there, and faced round. The garret, built to be a depository for firewood and the like, was dim and dark, for the window of a dormer shape was in truth a door in the roof, with a little crane over it, for the hoisting up of stores from the street, unglazed, and closing up the middle in two pieces, like any other door of French construction to exclude the cold one half of this door was fast closed and the other was opened but a very little way such a scanty portion of light was admitted through these means that it was difficult on first coming in to see anything and long habit alone could have slowly formed in any one the ability to do any work requiring nicety in such obscurity yet work of that kind was being done in the garret for, with his back towards the door, and his face towards the window where the keeper of the wine-shop stood looking at him, a white-haired man sat on a low bench, stooping forward, and, very busy, making shoes. CHAPTER Six: THE SHOEMAKER "'Good day,' said Monsieur Defarge, looking down at the white head that bent low over the shoemaking. It was raised for a moment, and a very faint voice responded to the salutation, as if it were at a distance. "'Good day.' "'You are still hard at work, I see.' After a long silence, the head was lifted for another moment, and the voice replied, "'Yes, I am working.' This time, a pair of haggard eyes had looked at the questioner, before the face had dropped again. The faintness of the voice was pitiable and dreadful. It was not the faintness of physical weakness, though confinement and hard fare no doubt had their part in it. Its deplorable peculiarity was that it was the faintness of solitude and disuse. It was like the last feeble echo of a sound made long and long ago. So entirely had it lost the life and resonance of the human voice that it affected the senses like a once beautiful colour faded away into a poor weak stain. So sunken and suppressed it was, that it was like a voice underground, so expressive it was of a hopeless and lost creature, that a famished traveller, wearied out by lonely wandering in a wilderness, would have remembered home and friends in such a tone, before lying down to die. Some minutes of silent work had passed, and the haggard eyes had looked up again, not with any interest or curiosity, but with a dull mechanical perception beforehand that the spot where the only visitor they were aware of had stood was not yet empty. "'I want,' said Defarge, who had not removed his gaze from the shoemaker, "'to let in a little more light here. You can bear a little more.' The shoemaker stopped his work looked with a vacant air of listening at the floor on one side of him, then similarly at the floor on the other side of him, then upward at the speaker. "'What did you say?' "'You can bear a little more light.' "'I I, I must bear it, if you let it in,' laying the palest shadow of a stress upon the second word the opened half-door was opened a little further and secured at that angle for the time a broad ray of light fell into the garret and showed the workman with an unfinished shoe upon his lap pausing in his labour his few common tools and various scraps of leather were at his feet and on his bench he had a white beard raggedly cut but not very long a hollow face and exceedingly bright eyes The hollowness and thinness of his face would have caused him to look large under his yet dark eyebrows and his confused white hair, though they had been really otherwise; but they were naturally large, and looked unnaturally so. His yellow rags of shirt lay open at the throat, and showed his body to be withered and worn. He and his old canvas frock, and his loose stockings, and all his poor tatters of clothes, had, in a long seclusion from direct light and air, faded down to such a dull uniformity of parchment yellow, that it wouldn't have been hard to say which was which. He had put up a hand between his eyes and the light, and the very bones of it seemed transparent. So he sat, with a steadfastly vacant gaze, pausing in his work. He never looked at the figure before him without first looking down on this side of himself, then on that, as if he had lost the habit of associating place with sound. He never spoke, without first wandering in this manner, and forgetting to speak. "'Are you going to finish that pair of shoes to-day?' asked Defarge, motioning to Mr. Lorry to come forward. "'What did you say?' "'Do you mean to finish that pair of shoes to-day?' Oh, "'I can't say that I mean to. I suppose so. I don't know.' but the question reminded him of his work and he bent over it again mr lorry came silently forward leaving the daughter by the door when he stood for a minute or two by the side of defarge the shoemaker looked up he showed no surprise at seeing another figure but the unsteady fingers of one of his hands strayed to his lips as he looked at it his lips and his nails were of the same pale lead colour and then the hand dropped to his work, and he once more bent over the shoe. The look and the action had occupied but an instant. "'You have a visitor, you see,' said Monsieur Defarge. "'What did you say?' "'Here is a visitor.' The shoemaker looked up as before, but without removing a hand from his work. "'Come,' said Defarge. "'Here is Monsieur.' Who knows a well-made shoe when he sees one? Show him that shoe you are working at. Take it, monsieur. Mr. Lorry took it in his hand. Tell monsieur what kind of shoe it is, and the maker's name. There was a longer pause than usual before the shoemaker replied. I forget what it was you asked me. What did you say? I said couldn't you describe the kind of shoe for monsieur's information it is a lady's shoe it is a young lady's walking shoe it is in the present mode i i never saw the mode i have had a pattern in my hand he glanced at the shoe with some little passing touch of pride and the maker's name said defarge now that he had no work to hold he laid the knuckles of the right hand in the hollow of the left and then the knuckles of the left hand in the hollow of the right and then passed a hand across his bearded chin and so on in regular changes without a moment's intermission the task of recalling him from a vagrancy into which he always sank when he had spoken was like recalling some very weak person from a swoon or endeavouring in the hope of some disclosure To stay the spirit of a fast dying man. Did you ask me for my name? Assuredly I did. One hundred and five North Tower. Is that all? One hundred and five North Tower. With a weary sound that was not a sigh nor a groan, he bent to work again, until the silence was again broken. "'You are not a shoemaker by trade?' said Mr. Lorry, looking steadfastly at him. His haggard eyes turned to Defarge, as if he would have transferred the question to him. But as no help came from that quarter, they turned back on the questioner, when they had sought the ground. "'I am not a shoemaker by trade.' Uh, "'No, I was not a shoemaker by trade. I, I, I learned it here.' I taught myself. I asked leave to—." He lapsed away, even for minutes, wringing those measured changes on his hands the whole time. His eyes came slowly back, at last, to the face from which they had wandered. When they rested on it, he started and resumed, in the manner of a sleeper that moment awake, reverting to the subject of last night i asked leave to teach myself and i got it with much difficulty after a long while and i have made shoes ever since as he held out his hand for the shoe that had been taken from him mr lorry said still looking steadfastly in his face monsieur manette do you remember nothing of me the shoe dropped to the ground and he sat looking fixedly at the questioner. Monsieur Manette—Mr. Lorry laid his hand upon Defarge's arm—do you remember nothing of this man? Look at him! Look at me! Is there no old banker, no old business, no old servant, no old time, rising in your mind, Monsieur Manette? As the captive of many years sat looking fixedly, by turns, at mr Lorry and at Defarge, some long obliterated marks of an actively intent intelligence in the middle of the forehead gradually forced themselves through the black mist that had fallen on him. They were overclouded again; they were fainter; they were gone; but they had been there. And so, exactly, was the expression repeated on the fair young face of her who had crept along the wall to a point where she could see him, and where she now stood looking at him, with hands which at first had been only raised in frightened compassion, if not even to keep him off and shut the sight of him, but which were now extending towards him, trembling with eagerness to lay the spectral face upon her warm young breast and love it back to life and hope. So exactly was the expression repeated, though in stronger characters, on her fair young face, that it looked as though it had passed like a moving light from him to her. Darkness had fallen on him in its place. He looked at the two less and less attentively, and his eyes, in gloomy abstraction, sought the ground, and looked about him in the old way. Finally, with a deep, long sigh, he took the shoe up, and resumed his work. "'Have you recognized him, monsieur?' said Defarge, in a whisper. "'Yes, for a moment. At first I thought it quite hopeless. But I have unquestionably seen, for a single moment, the face that I once knew so well. Hush! Let us draw further back. Hush!' She had moved from the wall of the garret, very near to the bench on which he sat. There was something awful in his unconsciousness of the figure that could have put out its hand and touched him, as he stooped over his labour. Not a word was spoken, not a sound was made. She stood like a spirit beside him, and he bent over his work. It happened, at length that he had occasion to change the instrument in his hand for his shoemaker's knife. It lay on that side of him which was not the side on which she stood. He had taken it up, and was stooping to work again, when his eyes caught the skirt of her dress. He raised them, and saw her face. The two spectators started forward, but she stayed them with a motion of her hand. She had no fear of his striking at her with the knife though they had. He stared at her with a fearful look, and after a while his lips began to form some words, though no sound proceeded from them. By degrees, in the pauses of his quick and laboured breathing, he was heard to say, "'What is this?' With the tears streaming down her face, she put her two hands to her lips, and kissed them to him, then clasped them on her breast as if she laid his ruined head there. "'You are not the jailer's daughter?' she sighed. "'No. Who are you?' Not yet trusting the tones of her voice, she sat down on the bench beside him. He recoiled, but she laid her hand upon his arm. A strange thrill struck him when she did so, and visibly passed over his frame he laid the knife down softly, as he sat staring at her. Her golden hair, which she wore in long curls, had been hurriedly pushed aside, and fell down over her neck. Advancing his hand by little and little, he took it up, and looked at it. In the midst of the action he went astray, and with another deep sigh fell to work at his shoemaking. But not for long. Releasing his arm, she laid her hand upon his shoulder. After looking doubtfully at it, two or three times, as if to be sure it was really there, he laid down his work, put his hand to his neck, and took off a blackened string with a scrap of folded rag attached to it. He opened this, carefully, on his knee, and it contained a very little quantity of hair not more than one or two long golden hairs, which she had, in some old day, wound off upon his finger. He took her hair into his hand again, and looked closely at it. "'It is the same—how can it be—when was it—how was it?' As the concentrated expression returned to his forehead, He seemed to become conscious that it was in hers too. He turned her full to the light and looked at her. She had laid her hand upon my shoulder that night when I was summoned out. She had a fear of my going, though I had none, and when I was brought to the North Tower, they found these upon my sleeve. You will leave me them? they can never help me to escape in the body though they may in the spirit those were the words i said i remember them very well he formed this speech with his lips many times before he could utter it but when he did find spoken words for it they came to him coherently though slowly how was this was it you?" Once more the two spectators started, as he turned upon her with a frightful suddenness. But she sat perfectly still in his grasp, and only said, in a low voice, "'I entreat you, good gentlemen, do not come near us, do not speak, do not move.' "'Hark!' he exclaimed, "'whose voice was that?' His hands released her as he uttered this cry, and went up to his white hair, which they tore in a frenzy. It died out, as everything but his shoemaking did die out of him, and he refolded his little packet and tried to secure it in his breast. But he still looked at her, and gloomily shook his head. "'No, no, no. You are too young, too blooming. It can't be—' see what the prisoner is these are not the hands she knew this is not the face she knew this is not a voice she ever heard no no she was and he was before the slow years of the north tower ages ago what is your name my gentle angel hailing his softened tone and manner his daughter fell upon her knees before him, with her appealing hands upon his breast. "'Oh, sir, at another time you shall know my name, and who my mother was, and who my father, and how I never knew their hard, hard history. But I cannot tell you at this time, and I cannot tell you here. all that I may tell you, here and now, is that i pray to you to touch me and to bless me kiss me kiss me oh my dear my dear his cold white head mingled with her radiant hair which warmed and lighted it as though it were the light of freedom shining on him if you hear in my voice i don't know that it is so but i hope it is if you hear in my voice any resemblance to a voice that once was sweet music in your ears, weep for it, weep for it. If you touch, in touching my hair, anything that recalls a beloved head that lay on your breast when you were young and free, weep for it, weep for it. If, when I hint to you of a home that is before us, where i will be true to you with all my duty and with all my faithful service i bring back the remembrance of a home long desolate while your poor heart pined away weep for it weep for it she held him closer round the neck and rocked him on her breast like a child if when i tell you dearest dear that your agony is over, and that I have come here to take you from it, and that we go to England to be at peace and at rest, I cause you to think of your useful life laid waste, and of our native France so wicked to you. Weep for it. Weep for it. And if, when I shall tell you of my name, and of my father who is living, and of my mother, Who is dead you learn that i have to kneel to my honoured father and implore his pardon for having never for his sake striven all day and lain awake and wept all night because the love of my poor mother hid his torture from me weep for it weep for it weep for her then and for me good gentlemen thank god i feel his sacred tears upon my face and his sobs strike against my heart Oh, see thank god for us thank god he had sunk in her arms and his face dropped on her breast a sight so touching yet so terrible in the tremendous wrong and suffering which had gone before it that the two beholders covered their faces. When the quiet of the garret had been long undisturbed, and his heaving breast and shaken form had long yielded to the calm that must follow all storms, emblem to humanity of the rest and silence into which the storm called life must hush at last, they came forward to raise the father and daughter from the ground. He had gradually dropped to the floor, and lay there in a lethargy, worn out. She had nestled down with him, that his head might lie upon her arm, and her hair drooping over him, curtained him from the light. "'If, without disturbing him,' she said, raising her hand to Mr. Lorry as he stooped over them, after repeated blowings of his nose, all could be arranged for our leaving Paris at once, so that—' from the very door he could be taken away. "'But consider, is he fit for the journey?' asked Mr. Lorry. "'More fit for that, I think, than to remain in this city so dreadful to him.' "'It is true,' said Defarge, who was kneeling to look on and hear. "'More than that. Monsieur Manette is, for all reasons, best out of France. Say, shall I hire a carriage and post-horses?' "'That's business,' said Mr. Lorry, resuming, on the shortest notice, his methodical manners. "'And if business is to be done, I had better do it.' "'Then be so kind,' urged Miss Manette, "'as to leave us here. You see how composed he has become, and you cannot be afraid to leave him with me now. Why should you be, if you will lock the door to secure us from interruption? i do not doubt that you will find him when you come back as quiet as you leave him in any case i will take care of him until you return and then we will remove him straight both mr lorry and defarge were rather disinclined to this course and in favour of one of them remaining but as there were not only carriage and horses to be seen to but travelling papers and as time pressed for the day was drawing to an end It came at last to their hastily dividing the business that was necessary to be done, and hurrying away to do it. Then, as the darkness closed in, the daughter laid her head down on the hard ground close to the father's side, and watched him. The darkness deepened and deepened, and they both lay quiet, until a light gleamed through the chinks in the wall. Mr. Lorry and Monsieur Defarge had made all ready for the journey and had brought with them, besides travelling clocks and wrappers, bread and meat, wine and hot coffee. Monsieur Defarge put this provender and the lamp he created on the shoemaker's bench—there was nothing else in the garret but a pallet-bed—and he and Mr. Lorry roused the captive and assisted him to his feet. No human intelligence could have read the mysteries of his mind in the scared black wonder of his face. Whether he knew what had happened, Whether he recollected what they had said to him, whether he knew that he was free, were questions which no sagacity could have solved. They tried speaking to him, but he was so confused and so very slow to answer, that they took fright at his bewilderment, and agreed for the time to tamper with him no more. He had a wild lost manner of occasionally clasping his head in his hands that had not been seen in him before yet he had some pleasure in the mere sound of his daughter's voice, and invariably turned to it when she spoke. In the submissive way of one long accustomed to obey under coercion, he ate and drank what they gave him to eat and drink, and put on the cloak and other wrappings that they gave him to wear. He readily responded to his daughter's drawing her arm through his, and took, and kept, her hand in both his own. They began to descend, Monsieur Defarge going first with the lamp, Mr. Lorry closing the little procession. They had not traversed many steps of the long main staircase when he stopped, and stared at the roof and round at the walls. "'You remember the place, my father? You remember coming up here?' "'What did you say?' But before she could repeat the question, he murmured an answer, as if she had repeated it. Remember? No i don't remember it was so very long ago that he had no recollection whatever of his having been brought from his prison to that house was apparent to them they heard him mutter one hundred and five north tower and when he looked about him it evidently was for the strong fortress walls which had long encompassed him on their reaching the courtyard he instinctively altered his tread as being in expectation of a drawbridge. And when there was no drawbridge, and he saw the carriage waiting in the open street, he dropped his daughter's hand, and clasped his head again. No crowd was about the door, no people were discernible at any of the many windows, not even a chance passer-by was in the street. An unnatural silence and desertion reigned there. Only one soul was to be seen and that was Madame Defarge, who leaned against the doorpost, knitting, and saw nothing. The prisoner had got into a coach, and his daughter had followed him, when mr Lorry's feet were arrested on the step by his asking, miserably, for his shoemaking tools and the unfinished shoes. Madame Defarge immediately called to her husband that she would get them, and went, knitting out of the lamplight, through the courtyard. She quickly brought them down and handed them in. And immediately afterwards leaned against the doorpost, knitting, and saw nothing. Defarge got upon the box and gave the word, to the barrier. The postilion cracked the whip, and they clattered away under the feeble over swinging lamps. Under the over swinging lamps, swinging ever brighter in the better streets and ever dimmer in the worse, and by lighted shops, gay crowds, illuminated coffee-houses, and theatre doors, to one of the city gates. Soldiers with lanterns at the guard-house there. Your papers, travellers. "'See here, then, monsieur the officer,' said Defarge, getting down and taking him gravely apart. "'These are the papers of monsieur inside, with the white head. They were consigned to me with him at the—' He dropped his voice. There was a flutter among the military lanterns, and one of them being handed into the coach by an arm in uniform, the eyes connected with the arm looked, not an every-day or an every-night look, at monsieur with the white head. "'It is well. Forward!' from the uniform. "'Adieu!' from Defarge. And so, under a short grove of feebler and feebler overswinging lamps, out under the great grove of stars." beneath that arch of unmoved and eternal lights some so remote from this little earth that the learned tell us it is doubtful whether their rays have even yet discovered it as a point in space where anything is suffered or done the shadows of the nights were broad and black all through the cold and restless interval until dawn they once more whispered in the ears of mr jarvis lorry sitting opposite the buried man who had been dug out, and wondering what subtle powers were forever lost to him, and what were capable of restoration, the old inquiry—I hope you care to be recalled to life—and the old answer—I can't say. End of Book the First